Welcome to Sound the Foghorn Fan Sighted's official San Francisco Giants podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and follow Around the Foghorn on Facebook and Twitter. Also, please leave reviews with your feedback. For every five-star review, make sure to include a question, and I will answer it alongside my guests on a future episode. I'm your host, Mark DeLuke, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Nola Aga, professor at the University of San Francisco, whose research is focused on professional sports around the globe. Thank, thanks for joining me, Nola. Mark, happy to be here. So I'm curious, you know, when did you uh, first sort of see yourself researching sports in, you know, in academic context? Like, is this something that you envisioned as an undergraduate student or is this something that kind of formed in a different way? You know, I was always, um, let's say a nerd. Let's just, <laughs> uh, you know, I was one of these people that loved school. I loved studying, but I was actually an exercise physiology undergrad and I applied for a PhD. I, and at one point I thought to myself, wait a minute, do I really want to study cells under a microscope for the rest of my life? And so I actually pulled back and I ended up t- taking a, a master's degree course in, uh, in sport management. And it was at that time that I read two books that changed my life. And the first was called Pay Dirt uh, by James Quirk and Rod Fort. And the other was called Sports, Jobs, and Taxes, which was edited by Roger Nolan and Andy Zimbalist. And the, the first one, Pay Dirt, was an economic approach to sport. It was basically applying math and economics to to something that I loved, which was sport. And I I read it and there was all these terms like competitive balance and Gini coefficient. And I didn't know what half of it meant, but my mind was exploding. And I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I can apply math to sport. Like that's the most perfect thing on earth. And my poor high school math teacher, who I always used to ask, why are we learning this? Why are we learning this? You know, like that was the answer that I was looking for my whole entire life. Uh, And then the other one, the sport jobs and taxes, it was also a a volume by a whole bunch of economists, but it took a public policy approach. It was how sports can make our communities better or worse, or how they can affect big social issues like taxes or income or community services. And, And that was super appealing to me as well. And so it was, it was really those two books that, that, um, that changed my life, the course of what I was going to do and what I was going to study. So, so you mentioned that sports has kind of been a passion or something you were interested. Has your work kind of changed, you know, your relationship with it? I'm assuming, you know, you're a fan. Has your research, does it change how you feel when you're watching a game or when you're cheering for a certain team? That's a great question. I mean, I, the, the San Francisco Giants run deep in my family history, you know, my, my, starting with my grandfather who listened to every single game or watched it on television. Uh, and I grew up watching the San Francisco 49ers with my dad every Sunday. So I, I definitely grew up with Joe Montana and Steve Young and I mean, this amazing football, but I'm never, I've never really been a fanatic per se. Uh, you know, I enjoy my teams, but I'm, but I'm not walking around in the gear all the time. I'm not constantly obsessed with the scores. And so I, I've always taken a slightly higher level view of the, the structure and the system of sport. And because of this interest that I have in public policy, I'm comfortable questioning the system, being critical of the system, thinking kind of bigger picture about the business of the sport industry and how it works. So it doesn't necessarily you know, destroy my interest when I'm watching my favorite team, uh, but it helps that I'm not a super gigantic fanatic to begin with. No, I feel like that's a lot healthier approach to life. <laughs> I think most of those fans would probably tell you. Um, so, you know, a part of the reason I'm having you on, obviously, this, you know, winter has been one that has, I mean, really, I guess, last few years, but especially this winter has been a source of 
some drastic, you know, unprecedented changes in minor league baseball. And that's an area where you focused a lot of your research. I'm curious, you know, I mean, you mentioned you're kind of focused, you know, you lean towards looking at these broader structural things, but even of those structures, minor league baseball isn't necessarily, you know, the one people think of first, you know, uh, what kind of led you down the path to, to looking at them? Actually, that's, that's a really good question. And I, and I get that a lot because it is a super unique context. And for me, it actually started with an interest in economic impact. So I grew up in Sacramento, California, and I went to a high school that was near city. It didn't have a lot of resources. I mean, there was days when they wouldn't open the bathrooms or if they did, there was no toilet paper. And yet in the morning, I'd look at the front page of the newspaper and the Kings were asking for more city money to build a new arena and they hadn't even finished paying off the, the millions of dollars of debt for the previous arena. And I couldn't, I couldn't disentangle those things in my mind as a kid. And so this, this concept of economic impact uh, has just always been very fascinating to me. And so where that leads to is once I, once I went into school and I was reading more about economic impact and studying it, what I found was that all the research had been done on, on the major leagues. And economists are actually very consistent in their belief of what's going on. Major league sports generally have no economic impact, which is of course a shock or surprise to everyone that I tell. And we can probably get into that in more detail in a mm -hmm. bit. It was this, this, this path of like, wait a minute, we know all these things about major league sports, no economic impact, tons of social impact, community pride, togetherness, and social value that we get from major league sports. Um, but we really know very little about the rest of the sport industries. And so what I mean by that is that the major leagues are positioned in the 30 or 40 largest cities in America. But minor league baseball, for example, is played in about 200 cities in America. And, and that's not even considering minor league hockey and all sorts of other leagues that exist. Uh, and so there had been absolutely no research done on that. What it meant to me, again, in the context of also this interest that I have in public policy, is that I could potentially be understanding this situation or this, this idea of economic impact and how investing in private sporting enterprises either hurts or helps a community. I could be impacting more communities. And so it's, it's kind of interesting when you, when you look at some of the numbers. So I did a, an interesting research project with the incomparable Dennis Coates, and we looked at stadiums between 2002 and like 2013. And there was 11 AAA and rookie stadiums built in that time period. And all of them except one had been built with public money. So again, it's, it's a public policy issue in small cities as well. But what's really fascinating is when you look at this, the, like in terms of per capita cost, in AAA markets, if we were to take the cost, which is the average cost at that time of a AAA stadium was about $50 million. If you divided by that, by, by every single resident of the city, each person would have to pay about $53 to build that, that stadium. In a rookie market, uh, the average cost of, a, of, of a, a minor league stadium at that time was about $8.5 million, but there's fewer people in rookie uh, markets just because they're really small cities. So on average, $71 a person. And in the Major League Baseball at that time, it was about $78 a person. So when you break this down like on a per person basis, the public policy implications, the budget implications are identical in large cities and in small cities, they're just at a different scale. So, you know, this, when you look at it as a, re, on a, like a relative basis, you have this equivalent public policy problem. Uh, and so then of course, 
you know, that, that led me to the economics of minor league baseball. And then after that, all sorts of other issues related to minor league baseball in, ter in terms of social impact, uh, rebranding, and now, of course, a lot of issues related to, to player pay. Yeah, so th that's really interesting, right? Because we, we, we think of what we're talking about these, you know, sports teams asking for public money, whether it's tax incentives, you know, land or, you know, straight up just cash or loans. But the idea that minor league stadiums are essentially having a similar potential siphoning effect or mm -hmm. not. And so I'm, I'm curious then what is the economic impact at the minor league level similar to major league levels where there doesn't seem to be any real economic, at least benefit from the municipality perspective? So I conducted a study in, that was published in 2013, and what I found was that in most minor league classifications, there was no effect, which is consistent what we were finding at the major league level. But there was a couple small exceptions, and the most robust exceptions, the ones that really seemed to hold up to a whole variety of different tests, were cities that had AAA teams and cities that built minor league uh, rookie level stadiums. And so the smallest of all, you know, rookie level stadiums, but AAA level cities, those actually had a positive effect on per capita income within those communities. Could you, could you try it? Like, I'm curious, well, what, that's, that's interesting. So essentially, if you kind of scale down the cost, right, because you're building, I guess, right, a pretend, probably a smaller kind of costing facility in a bigger you know, I guess, city or, or area. So what were kind of the theories you guys came up with about why there seemed to be a benefit from that? Man, that's a, <laughs> that's a tricky question because we have to kind of dig into like, in some level, like why do major league sports not have an impact? So let me try and break it down on a couple of different levels. Um, first of all, economic impact itself is this idea that the economy is growing, that you're adding more to a community or to an, to an economy that wasn't there before. Uh, so, you know, you can just imagine a bubble and we're somehow shoving like more dollars inside of that. So that's the idea of an, having an economic impact that there's just boost. And so it, at the major league level, sometimes we'll say, well, or the major league teams will say, listen, um, there's, there's new fans. We're bringing more people into the ballpark and more people to the city than we ever would have before. But what we've actually found of what happens is, yes, there's, there's more people coming in, but there's probably an equivalent amount of fans of that team that are leaving the community and taking dollars out when they go follow the team on the road. Uh, so that there's no kind of net gain there. Um, in, in terms of like this idea of uh, economic impact as well, sometimes they'll say, okay, well, well, more locals are coming to the game, but we don't actually count how much money a local resident is spending in terms of economic impact because um, because that is the local economy. When I go out and I buy groceries and I buy gas, that is just the local economy. I'm not boosting and I'm not doing more than what it would have other, done otherwise. And so, you know, I, I, can, I can pay to go to a major league baseball game. I can pay to go to a minor league baseball game, or I can pay to go out to dinner or watch a movie. Well, before COVID, maybe I could watch a movie. <laughs> so there's all these different things that I could do with my money. So, you know, even just those conditions, thinking about, you know, fans and locals, we see different, um, different characteristics at the minor league level. Because at the minor league level, and especially, like I said, you know, rookies, at the rookie level, we notice this positive effect. But rookie leagues are very geographically isolated. 
So the Appalachian League, and then you look at, you know, the Montana, Utah, you know, teams that are, are really far, um, on average, like 400 miles away from the closest major league baseball team. So what happens is our hypothesis, I mean, we don't know for sure, but, you know, maybe you're, maybe you really are drawing more people to that community than you would have otherwise. Uh, there is a lot of research showing that Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball are substitutes, but if Major League Baseball is 400 miles away, you know, maybe it really is drawing more people into these smaller towns. Uh, and we, you know, again, you're, you're probably not seeing that equivalent number of people leaving to go to a Major League Baseball game because it's far away. So that's kind of just one example of an effect that we would uh, that we would measure, which is spending by locals and by visitors and how it's different between Major League and Minor League Baseball. That's, that's really interesting. And that sort of brings me to, so, you know, the, obviously, you know, I, I mentioned at, at the beginning and, you know, you're well aware Major League Baseball has done, I guess, what they would probably call a restructuring of their kind of minor league system, their minor league affiliate structure, cutting a lot of teams. But I remember at least one of the quote unquote selling points that they were talking about was trying to cut down long travel for players to limit, you know, extended bus rides or the need for a flight and then a five hour bus ride or something to that effect, which, you know, granted, I haven't looked specifically at the teams that were cut, although I know there were a number of franchises that were cut and supposedly the ones that were most likely to be cut were the isolated ones. And so I'm curious, I mean, again, you know, if, if you have had the chance to look at it, would you expect then that this restructuring is probably going to disproportionately hurt the economies that were actually the ones benefiting the most from minor league baseball? That's a good question. And I'm going to, I'm going to take it back a couple of steps because there's this idea of economic impact. Like I said, the, the number of new dollars that are being drawn into a community, but there's also this idea of financial impact. So if, if most of those classifications of minor league baseball had no, um, like I said, no positive effect. Most of them, most of them really had none. If the teams leave, um, that means that there's really going to be no loss from their absence. There's no gain from their presence and there's really no loss from their absence. Uh, we kind of see it at the major league level too. As soon as a team moves, people will say, oh man, is this going to be bad for the community? And it's like, no, because the, the major league team wasn't, wasn't adding to the community anyway. So, you know, when the Raiders leave Oakland, it's not like there's a loss because there's, there's not a gain to, to Vegas in terms of, of teams. Now, I mean, your, your question is a little bit more nuanced though. I mean, you're asking, well, okay, so yeah, there was a lot of these rookie leagues um, that, that folded and, or, you know, teams that, that no longer have the affiliation, they're changing to these college wood bat leagues and all sorts of things that's going on there, which is really super complicated. So if we are talking about the rookie level, um, it's possible. Now, the reason I say it's possible is that a lot of the, the value of these teams is a social benefit. So you can think about the fact that rookie leagues and, and even AAA leagues, they tend to actually be the most stable. These teams uh, on average have been in their markets for like 17 years. So these are like really stable uh, parts of the community. Nearly an entire generation of people has grown up with them. So there's this really large social impact uh, that, that can be a, a positive thing to our community and can disappear when it goes away. Um, but then there's also the financial consequence, okay? And so this is, this is where you have to consider, you know, did the city pay to build the stadium, okay? If they did, they might be right now currently paying an awful lot of money 
to, to pay back the, the debt for the bonds that they took in order to build that stadium. So if this team suddenly goes away, that can be a huge financial hit for the city. On the flip side, if I'm not hosting any games as a city, I don't have to pay for police, traffic, EMT services, trash, like all these, these kind of like operating costs for the games. I don't have to. So that could actually be a financial benefit to the city's budget, if you think about it from that perspective. Uh, and then the other part is kind of uh, just a capital improvement. So you, you, you pay an awful lot of money to build a stadium. And um, what's an example? I know I was talking about the, the Cedar Rapids Colonels with somebody the other day. It's a, a class A stadium, affiliated of the Twins. They spent $5 million in 2002 to build a stadium. Uh, they pay about $90 million a year, actually for about the first decade that it was open from 2002 to like 2011, they paid about $90,000 a year just for ongoing maintenance, which is, which is normal. But that's coming out of your, your annual budget, your annual city budget. But after that first decade, you know, stuff gets old, it starts to break, costs more. So that increased to $150,000 a year. And at the same time, the team said, listen, we need a, a capital improvement fund. So then the city is kicking in a million and a half dollars into this capital improvement fund. So there is a lot of ongoing costs to communities that don't have anything to do with economic impact. They have to do with financial or like budgetary impact. And so for, for a city like the Rapids, they were lucky they, they, they got to, to actually keep um, their team. But, but certainly some of the cities who didn't, it could go either way, depending on whether they're saving money because they don't have this ongoing operations and maintenance expense, or it could actually be an enormous burden if they're still trying to pay back the bonds that they took out to build the stadium. The other thing we saw was a lot of like affiliate changes, right? Where teams were, yeah. you know, like the, the Giants, right? Had a relationship with the Augusta Green Jackets for years and that's no longer there. They now are moving their, I guess, what be the low A, you know, affiliate is now, well, it's now the San Jose Giants, but then they're basically the affiliate replacing the uh, Augusta Green Jackets now in the Pacific Northwest. And the Augusta Green Jackets are now with, you know, Atlanta, which is obviously geographically closer. You know, I'm curious, is there any research that would sort of discuss, you know, is that going to have an impact or is that something that, um, you know, it seems like kind of more of a wash for, uh, from, from the individual minor league, I guess, team perspective? That's a great question. Now, there had been a movement b before this restructuring of the minor leagues. Some major league teams tried very hard to move their affiliates closer, geographically closer. The Red Sox are a good example. They were trying to, to make it much smaller. And you're absolutely right. You save money on travel, uh, but just logistics. Uh, there's, there's just a lot of benefits of being closer. There's also like a geographical branding effect. Even if uh, your teams have different names, they're not named after the Sox, then you, or the Red Sox, you, you, people can still know that they're, they're an affiliate and that kind of just creates a broader uh, like regional affiliation for that team. So minor league baseball, I mean, it's, it's great as a development system, but realize it's also very much a grassroots getting people involved in becoming baseball fans system. And so that is one of the powerful benefits of it. Now, not all teams were doing that. Obviously this reorg was an opportunity to do it um, much more dramatically and much quicker. There, you do have to be careful though. So I, I had done a study a few years ago um, with another colleague and, and we looked at this, this idea of a substitution effect. So Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball 
can be substitutes for each other. And it has to do with the classification and it has to do with the distance, um, but there are effects. So you, the, the idea is you can bring your double A team too close. You might be able to bring your, your, your single A team too close. And at some point you're gonna cannibalize anybody who might've gone to the minor league. Maybe they're gonna go to the, the major league or vice versa. And so you, um, you certainly have to be really careful with that. Um, there was another study by uh, two authors, um, Seth Gitter and Tom Rhodes, and they found the same thing, that Major League and Minor League Baseball are substitutes. For them, they found the effect only within 100 miles. So as in most things in life, the answer is it depends. You know, there, there are some things that you can take away that are, are, are some of these relationships and these distances for affiliation that might be beneficial, and there's some that, that might be not beneficial, depending on how close and also how um, tight the community is with their affiliation with that team. Sometimes a, a city doesn't care if you change affiliations. Sometimes a city really does because they care very much about the affiliate. And so it, it kind of depends how the, the mightily team has been branding and promoting themselves over the years, whether the community really cares about that affiliation or not. Yeah, talk about the, the substitution effect of that, I think is really, uh, I, I can connect with that because I, you know, when me and my family would, go to the Bay area in sort of the mid late two thousands when the San Francisco giants weren't necessarily a particularly competitive team and ticket prices were still, you know, major league prices. We often would go to, we would choose to not go to San Francisco giants games and go to San Jose giants games because, mm. you know, the, the big league team, you know, wasn't necessarily as interesting to us at that time. The minor league team was close and obviously it was a lot cheaper and more convenient. And so, you know, that's, I think a real direct example, I imagine for a lot of fans in the Bay area where, you know, that makes a lot of sense that sort of, there is that point where if it's close, you know, if you're too close together or other things that can um, make a difference. And with, all of you know the movement from the team side the city side there's obviously a lot of moving parts there but I, I do wonder what impact or does this restructuring do you think have an impact on the circumstances for players especially minor league players who've obviously um been you know you know exploited i i think might not be or wouldn't be an unfair uh phrase to use because you know some very low wages for a lot of time obviously um, without a union and a host of other things, you know, now there's obviously fewer opportunities with the minor leagues because these teams have been removed. But is this something that would create more pressure for wages to move upward for maybe, you know, them to be considered potentially full-time employees or, you know, get something more in that way? Or is that something you think that is really unaffected by this restructuring, that that's something that is sort of hopefully moving in that direction independent of this? There was so yeah, where to begin with this? I mean, it's, it's such a, a complicated issue, but there were so many organizations involved in trying to improve the working conditions of minor league players before COVID hit and before this restructuring. I mean, it was really kind of a double blow that both of those happened at the same time. Uh, but these organizations, sprouted up, they, they, these nonprofits came into existence because of the, like you said, you know, the, the working conditions in minor league baseball, which are, which are long hours and low pay, but you know, there's a lot of jobs like that. The issue here was that major league baseball, you know, was able to pass legislation 
through the U.S. Congress, which basically legalizes paying less than minimum wage for minor league baseball players. I mean, so they, they really took advantage of this antitrust exemption that they have. Uh, and I mean, right now, of course, there's even lawsuits from the minor league teams that did not receive, uh, you know, an affiliate contract this year, who are also claiming sort of that same thing, which is Major League Baseball is using this monopoly power that they have to try and control the marketplace. Now, so there was there was a movement to increase player pay. Uh, we saw the Toronto Blue Jays actually start to um, increase the amount of pay that they played. Now, as an economist, I love that. That's a natural experiment. What I would have loved is, is no COVID and multiple seasons afterwards so I could see paying more actually helped players develop better, which in theory it should. I mean, these players are reporting like they're not, they don't have enough money for, for food. You know, I mean, really like for a, a, a sleeping conditions where you can get a good night's sleep. So, you know, if I'm major league baseball and I'm, and I have a development system. My, my whole minor league system is designed to, to find and train the best players in the world. You would think I would want to invest in those players so I can find that, that best one, that next big superstar. And instead, if I'm paying them so low and, and treating them so poorly that you've got people dropping out because they just can't handle the conditions, I'm not doing a very good job in training. And so one of the things that the arguments that major league baseball kind of came around with this is they said, okay, fine. You know, you, you guys want more money. Okay, fine. Then we're going to have fewer minor league baseball players. Sure. We're going to just cut some teams. We're going to cut a whole bunch of player positions in the development side. And okay, sure. Then maybe we can pay you a little bit more. Now it's um, that that's, again, that's the power that they're exerting on this system. They, they certainly could have paid more, which we saw the blue Jays doing um, without um, you know, taking out so many opportunities for, for development players. You know, ultimately, is it, is it going to help them? It's, it's yet to be seen. You know, we, we still haven't, you know, played ball in, in a very long time, certainly at the, at the minor league level. And it's going to be a while before we see the effect of the change on the system that they've developed. We often, I think, think of you know, major, at least from a lot of fans, I think, right, think of Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball players as one entity and minor league baseball players as sort of a part of that. And the reality is that the, the way these things play out, that these are, you know, competing interests, that these ultimately are different groups working, you know, with different goals in mind, right? And obviously, you know, the most obvious one, I think the most people is the MLB, you know, teams and owners and MLB players with, you know, a long history of strikes and lockouts and various things. And we could be moving towards, and we seem to be moving towards potentially another one of those in the next couple of years or next year or two, as the current, you know, major league collective bargaining agreement expires, but you know, minor league players really have been caught somewhat in the middle of that because major league players get to negotiate essentially on their behalf to a certain degree when it comes to the draft and international free agency, but then also don't have a union to negotiate other things mm -hmm. as well. And, and so it is just um, a circumstance where, again, like, like you mentioned, you know, baseball is not like a, another, I mean, really there's, there aren't uh, industries a lot like the professional sports because you know, the 30 teams, while technically are competing, are also within what, right, in economics we'd call a cartel, right, which is they're coordinated. They're kind of working together. This is not, you know, the, the White Sox and Giants may be competing on the field, maybe competing for players, but in the scheme of labor and, you know, the people they're hiring, they're actually on the same side. And I think that's also a thing that 
you know, for a lot of people may not be thinking about or may not realize, but that it's really there's one entity of Major League Baseball for all of these players and, and frankly, even non-player employees to work for. And it makes it even harder to kind of get, you know, power to kind of negotiate or get leverage. Yeah. And we see that with the minor league players. So it's, as you alluded to, you know, they're a cartel, they're, they're a monopsony employer. They're the single employer. If I want to play in the highest level baseball league in the world, I have one option, right? I have major league baseball. And so there's a single employer, which means they can define the working conditions for the single system, the minor league system that gets me there. They have all of the power and all of the control. And, and so as a minor league player, we've, we've been doing a lot of like interviews and surveys with minor league players and they're no one really wants to speak out against the system. And, and the reason is it's their one shot. I mean, you, you, if you were a baseball player, I mean, you were an athlete as a kid, you know, you spend your whole life training, right? You get, you get one shot at the Olympics. If you're, you know, an Olympic sport athlete, you get one shot in major, you know, making major league baseball, whatever your sport is, you've usually got that one shot and you're not going to do anything to rock the boat. And so that's why so many minor league players um, won't even speak out against the system. It's usually players that are out of the system that, that have talked about the working conditions and even though they would have much more power if they were unionized, really nobody um, wants to stick their neck out and do that because that could jeopardize their single opportunity to make it to the big leagues. You know, if Major League Baseball has all the control to cut and player um, and that player has no recourse, even if they're the best player on the team, if they got, you know, wind that you were trying to unionize, they could cut you. It's, you're an at-will employee and that's it. You're done you're out of the system. So that's the, that is the power of being not only an, a monopoly, but also a monopsony employer in this situation is that they, they, they control the entire game, the whole system. And, you know, thinking about, so what kind of, you know, this is kind of, I guess, shifting away from analyzing it and getting, I guess, more into kind of, you know, your perspective on it for minor league baseball players, you know, what kind of, is the approach I know you know Garrett Brochuist, a former Giants prospect, is actually one of the people who's created advocates for minor league baseball. They've been trying to get the word out, get public pressure, and that seemed uh, to play a big role in a lot of teams. I think every team at a certain point agreeing to give their minor league players a four hundred dollar a week stipend during mm -hmm. you know the lack of minor league season this year. Um, you know, I, I know he brought a class action lawsuit, which prompt in that legislation you talked about, but are, is that kind of the method that it's going to have to kind of come from public and fan pressure to really do this? Because there are, it doesn't sound like at least there's a lot of other forces that are going to, um, you know, advocate for these players. There are very few and you're right. I mean, what Garrett and advocate for minor league leaguers were, was doing this year. I mean, they were basically publicly shaming major league baseball. I mean, they really were with their tweets and their, their posts on social I mean, just saying, listen, you know, here's a player and you promised them $400 and now you're not even paying them that, you know, teams would back off and they'd get sort of publicly shamed and then they'd agree to pay again. Um, you know, so the power of social is part of it, but that's not enough to get them to change the entire system. I mean, to be honest, there was a, an interesting quote um, earlier this year from, um, from somebody within Major League Baseball and basically saying, hey, listen, if we, if we decimate this system, somebody's gonna sue us on antitrust grounds. And that means, you know, we could potentially lose this exemption that we have had for, for so many years. Uh, and so maybe it's that, you know, maybe it eventually comes to that. But, 
it's not just unique to Major League Baseball. You know, when you, you look at any of the, the major sport leagues in the United States, uh, they're monopolies and they control the number of teams that they have. They artificially reduce the number of, of teams that exist. I mean, 100 years ago, there were, there were, you know, multiple teams in New York City. And, you know, the, we, the idea is that the market can bear a lot more baseball teams. Uh, and there is this, this forced reduction in the supply of teams. So they, and it's, so again, it's not just baseball. Um, it's it's the, the sense that a single player uh, can have control when you control the highest levels. We're seeing it now in soccer, if you wanna flip over to FIFA, starting to uh, make threats against, um, you know, some of the, the leagues that are saying that they're gonna create other championships. And they see that as a threat to their, their own ability to run championships. And so they're saying, well, you know, if you, if you run another championship, then basically you're not allowed to be in ours. Uh, and so again, you see it across sport at all sorts of different levels. It happens to be one of the, one of the most powerful things that esports have going for them right now is that there isn't a single system, there isn't a single owner, um, there isn't a single tournament director. And so there's actually a little bit more freedom for players to play within all sorts of, of different um, organized play. Uh, but anyway, it just goes back to that higher order of, of, you know, what can you do to build equitable systems, but what recourse do you have legally in order to do so? I think bringing other sports is also an interesting comparative, the role, you know, again, the big, the really only players that have power in this are generally the, the big leaguers, right? MLB players mm -hmm. and basketball, it's the NBA union, it's an NFL, it's yeah. the NFL players union. And you can also, I think, see the contrast in how the unions have approached it. Obviously, in basketball, there's much fewer players on the roster. There's not – they've developed a kind of G League, which has kind of been their minor leagues. But we've actually seen the NFL player – excuse me, not NFL, the NBA Players Association advocate for these players. That's where the two-way contract and other kind of minimum salaries have been you know, instituted. And that's where you know, the MLB Players Union is obviously not necessarily – strong enough at the moment or comfortable or, you know, deciding to, um, you know, they have their own interest in mind as their share of revenue has been decreasing. And, you know, this isn't uh, to, you know, critique that union in contrast to another. It's just to, to point out that the choices these unions make are also having, you know, to use a political term like down ballot effects, right. Where, you know, what they're kind of in a position to focus on has um, that impact as well. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, uh, there have been calls, you know, for, for major leaguers to, to bring the minor leaguers within their collective of bargaining. They have that power and they have that ability. They've chosen not to, you know, and it's for a lot of different reasons. And, and we see this in a lot of different contexts, not just baseball, but there's often this, there's very little incentive. Once you have made it to the big leagues, um, there isn't a lot of incentive for you to bring up the people that are still trying to get in. And it's because there's this fear that it's gonna take uh, away from your own, your own power and your own salary and your own negotiating abilities. So it, it does also have to historically do with, um, I guess the positioning of the leagues. You know, baseball, it's been very contentious, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, the baseball owners have been found guilty in, in federal courts of colluding to reduce players' salaries, which means whenever there are these negotiations, they tend to be much more contentious in, in baseball. And we saw that even kind of during the COVID period, uh, they're, they're, even now around spring training, like they're, they're really struggling to, to come to an agreement. Whereas the NBA Players Association has been 
a little more open, a little more worldly, a little more encompassing in their approach to the situation, but the NBA has as well. So they've been, it's been easier for them to come to, to a common ground that's kind of what's best for everybody and for there to be more trust on both sides. Um, and you know, I'll say this too, I, it, believe it or not, I can even tie this back to economic impact, you know, which is Major League Baseball salaries are actually another one of the reasons that we see that Major League Sports uh, don't have positive impact on their, their economies. And, and here's how it works. In, for most major league teams, about 60% of your payroll uh, is, is paid to players. But players rarely live in the city that they're, they're playing for, at least full-time. Usually have a home somewhere else, usually somewhere nice and warm like Florida. Uh, but they save really high. You know, 40% of the salary is, go, is going to taxes and a good chunk of it is going to savings, which aren't staying in the local economy. And so when you really think about it, a major league team takes money from mostly local residents and visitors who come in to go to the game. And 60% of that basically get, gets kicked straight out of the local economy. And we call that a leakage. So you, you went to a business and then they shipped most of your money outside the local economy. Whereas at the, at the minor league level, it's actually the opposite the major leagues pay minor league players salaries and they're getting paid so little, almost everything they earn is being spent locally. And so even this idea of leakages, it's the opposite at the minor league level. There's actually more money flowing into a community. And so, you know, how would that change if major leaguers brought minor leaguers into the fold? Um, I'm not sure we'd still see more money going out at the, the major leagues and at the minor leagues, but there would definitely be some room for improvement if all of the players that are being paid by Major League Baseball were within the same collective bargaining unit. I think that's where it also gets into, that's a really good connection because it brings in the elements where ultimately we're, it seems like we're at kind of a place where we have a lot of, you know, I guess issues or undesirable outcomes, or I guess or however you want to phrase it, right? Where it's like, you know, well, how could we, you know, quote unquote, improve the economic impact these teams are having, or how could we, you know, help players, you know, make more money or get more the pay they deserve, frankly. And some of those things aren't necessarily compatible, right? Like in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like if players probably do pretty much at all levels, maybe probably even including major league baseball do deserve to be getting probably paid more than they've been receiving over the last couple of years, given sort of the, um, what some of it called, and I think isn't, maybe to the, the full extent of collusion, but seems that way, at least in the approach of MLB front offices over the past few years, you know, that players should be being paid more, but that also might mean that the potential quote unquote positive economic impacts to local, you know, cities or, or places, you know, isn't necessarily there, but that gets to, I think at the beginning when you were talking about the various benefits, but also what role the municipalities have right in this, that, why are cities and municipalities being asked to give these tax breaks or give these loans or straight up pay for things? Um, and I think that's um, sort of the, the larger question in this, right? Like aside, you know, the, we wouldn't be having this economic impact discussion probably, right? If municipalities across the country refuse to do this, right? It's been part because there's public money, there's taxpayer money, as you mentioned, 50 to you know $80 per person in, in, in a lot of places that is going to these teams. And, you know, that raises these other questions. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating when you look at other leagues around the world. So it's only in the last few years that you've seen uh, 
other cities in Europe, for example, paying money to build stadiums. Before that, there was absolutely no public money that was flowing into sort of facilities for, for teams. And it, partially because they have a promotion and relegation system, which we don't, which allows, again, less of this market power to be in a single organization. But also, these teams didn't have an incentive to leave. They, they were focused on their communities, these teams in, in other countries when you have promotion and relegation. And so there was no threat of moving. But in, in our system, without promotion and relegation, your team isn't tied to the city. Your team is tied to who, whichever city is going to pay them the most money. And again, that goes back to the market power of reducing, artificially reducing the number of teams that are out there. In a promotion and relegation system, any city can be like, I want a team. Let's start one. And they can work their way up. Um, but so there can be, there's more space in the system to create teams where there's demand for a team. Here, we have this reduced supply. There is a lot more demand. And so you've got, got cities pitted against each other saying, well, you know, I'll build you a $50 million minor league stadium. And another one's, well, I'll build you a $60 million uh, minor league stadium. And so we have these battles and the leagues know it. And that's, again, one of the reasons is monopoly. You reduce the number of teams artificially because that way you get cities bidding for the right to build you something or to pay your maintenance costs or to pay your capital improvement expenses and, and to really insert all this money in the system. So it's certainly hard, which goes back to your question of like, well, what can cities do to, to improve the situation? And, and part of it is hard. I mean, I know for years people have said, well, just, you know, the public and the city should just stop spending money. Well, it's not that simple. You know, like as a politician, you want to be the one that brought that team to your city or finished building that new stadium. I mean, that's amazing for you. There's a, there's a lot of benefits there. But like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of social benefit to sport as well. When we look at the economic side, we can say, listen, it's really not drawing new money to the, the economy. When we look at it in a financial perspective, we can say most of the time cities do a really bad job and end up paying way too much money. Uh, there's some that can negotiate good contracts and maybe there's a good balance between how much the city pays and how much the team pays. On the social side though, you know, there are people who say, listen, there's, there's value. In fact, I tried to, to measure what that value would even be for my league baseball. And there is value. Some cities are going to value having that, um, that, that entity in their city as much as they might value having a, a local symphony or a really amazing library system or bike trails all throughout the city, bike paths. Like the cities are going to value things differently and there's a social benefit to, to each of them. Uh, so it's really for cities to decide what's in their best interest. And, you know, at the end of the day, it might actually be spending some money on a, on a team. That might be the what they decide is the best use of their money. It won't have an economic impact return. It probably won't have a financial impact, but it could have a social impact. And maybe that's what they care about. You know, putting their name on the map is kind of what you hear, a phrase you often hear a lot. Um, and, and could you do it better? Sure. You know, financially, you can negotiate better leases. Financially, use that facility for more than baseball. You know, have the local high school graduation in it. There's no money there, but that makes people happy. Um, have, a, have a rock concert there. That might draw some money from outside of the city. You know, so that there's, there's these things that you can do to at least improve the system that we're working within. And to, to kind of close on the, the player side of this as well, I think with player development, you know, you mentioned we haven't seen, you know, we've seen a lot of teams, you know, kind of move towards paying players marginally more at the minor league level. Again, I think, you know, most of you in agreement, it, it's still not, it was 
so incredibly low now that even quote unquote large percentage raises still probably don't bring it to where it needs to be. But we haven't necessarily seen um, you know the long term effects of that. But just logically, and again, you know, logic has you know been wrong before, but it, it seems also just to work in so short sighted from teams' perspectives, because how many players are leaving the sport before they want to, before they've maximized their talents, you know, because they can't afford to. How many players are not able to train as much in the off season as they want to because they have to work another job or have to, you know, try to find other work. Like it it just, or, you know, even, you know, even more basic one for again, where, you know, some players are making like $4,000 a year to play minor league baseball. If we go back, you know, if he's like, like, absurdly low amounts of money where like you know nutrition we know has an impact on athletic (laughs) performance right and and Mm -hmm. like you know for a lot of people if if that's you know the primary or even if it is only a secondary source of income that's gonna force you know uh sacrifices players are gonna have to make there and it just seems so incredibly short-sighted from a team perspective if the focus is winning baseball games right or making the best team yeah I mean, like I said, once once this new system, whatever it ends up looking like, uh, is in is in play for for a little while, we'll start to have enough data where we can actually start to analyze that. Uh, like I said, I, I wish we would have had more years on the Toronto Blue Jays and their experiment to pay more. It was a great natural experiment to compare them to the teams that weren't to see if they were actually able to develop better players or develop them faster or have higher output. Because in theory, you would expect that. And if, if, again, you know, if, if I'm a profit maximizing owner, which is what we generally consider them to be, right now they're focused on very short term profit maximization, you know, and that's, again, li- absolutely limiting the pay to minor league players as little as possible. And you would think if you were interested in longer term maximization, profit maximization, that it would be to your benefit to find that, that amazing person, that one who's going to become a superstar that's going to really benefit your team in the long run. And of course, there's some calculations you have to do along the way. You could overpay at the minor league level. You know, it, it certainly, it costs millions of dollars to train players, but that's the whole point. If, if my singular goal as a major league baseball team is to find the best major league baseball players on the planet and get them on my field, then yeah, I'm going to have to spend some money to do that. And so it's a balance, but they have certainly gone too far in the direction of short-term profit maximization by, by, by squeezing that system so tight that they're probably not maximizing and they're probably not doing a good job of, of really developing the best talent. And I'd love to see, I mean, I'd love to see in this, this new system if we see a change or an improvement of that, or if it even simply just becomes more efficient based on the way they restructure it. That is University of San Francisco economics professor Nolaga. You can follow her on Twitter at N-O-L-A-A-G-H-A. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Mark, it was fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, If you want to stay up to date on all Giants news and rumors, make sure to stay tuned to AroundTheFoghorn.com. I'm your host, Mark DeLuke. You can follow me on Twitter at MadDeLuke. That's M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. Thank you very much for joining us on this 13th episode of Sound the Foghorn. Until next time, have a good one. Stay safe.